Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. I just want you to know that that was significantly better than first service and yet excessively weak um, still also. So how you doing, church? Man, um, it's official. If you haven't noticed, winter is here and it's not going anywhere. I know I too am also hoping that we'll get a thaw again and I'll be able to do those other things and we will. That's right. Uh, if you're watching online, if you made it this far, um, good on you. I want to apologize for our sound issues today. Um, yeah, whatever sound they're getting online, they're getting through the camera itself. So it sounds like one of your home videos. Um, so anyways, but if you made it this far, well done, well done. And um, it's worth sticking around. We um, have been in this series, uh, really in the book of Proverbs. And the book of Proverbs is a book of wisdom. Um, it's wise sayings or wise answers to tough questions. But really, um, to, to be entirely honest, the brilliance of Proverbs is actually um, the comparison and contrast that is found in it. In fact, it takes two competing ideas um, and then contrasts them against one another to give you a picture of what it looks like to either be this or that. Now, here's the interesting part um, about Proverbs, because if you've been in um, these series with us over the past few weeks, I often find that it seems like it is um, self-explanatory, that most people believe, um, is it better to be foolish or wise. How many of you say it's better to be foolish? Okay, well, at least you're listening because you didn't raise your hand. I mean, it's better to be wise. Yeah, um, how many of you say um, it's better to be humble than prideful? Okay, don't lift your hand. It's up to you. Um, it's not prideful to get the answer right. Um, uh, is it better to be honest or dishonest? How many of you would say honest? Good, good. Um, I didn't see my dad raise his hand, but that's okay. Um, uh, how many of you say it's better to be dishonest? No. Okay, I saw that hand um, back there. Um, this week, we're delving into another topic that to me, on the surface at least, seems like it should be um, a relatively simple answer. We should do like Jonas did last week and just say, let's pray and go home. And it's this issue. Um, is it better to be diligent or derelict? I love that word. You derelict. Like, um, is it better to be diligent or lazy? Let me give you a couple of definitions real quick. Um, the definitions of diligence, careful and persistent work or effort. Derelict in your responsibilities, shamefully negligent in doing what one should. How do you feel like that describes your spouse? <laughs> Don't. 
Um, uh, over the next few moments, um, we're going to really be unpacking this idea because the real question we're asking is not which one is better than the other. I think we all sort of intuitively know the answer to that question. What we're actually going to be doing is asking, why does it even matter to God? Why did God take the time to address these issues in the scriptures? And remember, in Proverbs, you're often dealing um, with uh, perspective. You're often dealing um, not necessarily with promises, but you're dealing with possibilities. And so here's what we're going to do in the next few moments. We're going to take a look at the origins of work. Where does the whole idea of work come from? I know most of you believe, like cats, the idea of work came from Satan, but it didn't. Um, and then we're going to look at the struggle um, of the sluggard, the one who does not want to work. And then we're going to look at some direction to the diligent. How should I work? And then we're going to look at the why we work and the what we work for, because actually both of those are really important issues, which brings me to origin story or the genesis of work. Um, I think probably like many of you, uh, I started working early in life, somewhere around one years old, uh, no, uh, but early in life when it comes to getting a job, okay, we'll just kind of put it in that realm versus mom said do the dishes, um, but getting a job, and my early jobs, because I grew up on a farm in Oklahoma, um, were things like hauling hay or cutting wood and then selling cords of wood to people um, that my parents knew. Um, but as early as I could, I started working to make some money. Back in the day, we would haul hay all summer long for somewhere between five and 10 cents a bale. Yeah, if you live in Alaska, you know how cheap that is now, but we were thrilled to make some money hauling hay, bucking bales all day long. I actually made a list because I've thought in the past, I've, I've referenced sort of the things I've done for work, um, and people are like, either you were a terrible employee and you had way too many jobs, or you had ADHD and you always wanted to try something new. I, just, I wrote a few of them down, hauling wood, uh, hauling hay and cutting wood, boarding cattle for people in the wintertime on the property that we had. Uh, I worked in a lumber yard for a while. It's okay. I learned how to use a tape measure. Um, I worked at KFC, Kentucky Fried Chicken, or as my sister calls it, Tucky Can Fried Chicken. Um, I worked at KFC for two and a half weeks. It took me all of three days to realize I do not want to work here, and I turned in my two weeks' notice. It was a combination of the uniform and every, I didn't care. I didn't even need to know all of the secret herbs and spices. I was willing to give all of that up to never work in a fast food restaurant again. I'm sorry. I just, I couldn't do it. Uh, KFC, I, I worked for the county road crew. Emphasis on I worked for, I wasn't in the orange jumpsuit. I was actually working with the guys in the orange jumpsuits, to be clear. Sorry that you wore the orange today. I, anyways, um, <laughs> Whoops. Uh, um, I worked loading trucks in a factory that my dad worked at. Um, I worked building skids for oil refineries for a while. I worked in the exotic animal industry. I, ooh. Uh, mostly hauling animals to auctions in places like Texas and whatnot. Super intriguing. I worked doing roofing for a while, both in Texas, which is where hell's going to be. I'm 
fairly confident you're going to be a roofer in Texas um, uh, and also up here in Alaska doing sheet metal roofing. Worked as a cabinet maker uh, for a person who hates details. That's the worst job ever. I'm sorry if I made your cabinets. Um, uh, worked as a carpenter for a union company for a while, a pizza delivery guy for a while. In fact, my wife and I both worked for the same pizza place in Homer, Pioneer Pizzeria. I worked as a commercial fisherman. Um, I also started a business management consulting company and ran that for a while. Um, a Bible school professor and a nonprofit owner. And now I'm a pastor. All of that prepared me for this moment right here, right now, with all of you. The reality is when it comes to jobs or work, we tend to think of it in a very narrow vein. We tend to think of it in regards to what we do for money. But work is actually much broader than that, and work also didn't originate with us. In fact, it originated with God. Genesis chapter 2 Verse 1, so the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation. So he rested from all of his work. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from all his work of creation. So God went to work in the very beginning of the story. In fact, you'll find a theme throughout the scriptures that God is at work. You'll find it all the way into the New Testament when Jesus comes and Jesus is at work in the world. And then if you were to fast forward to Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17, God has created mankind, and this is what it says in Genesis 2, 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to, what does it say? Work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. It's interesting. We think about work in relationship to often retirement. Like, I'm going to work really hard for a really long time so that I can quit working at some point. And the sooner you quit working, the sooner you can retire, the more successful you appear to be. But that's because we think about work in this very narrow vein of what I do for employment or to earn a wage. And yet in the perfect world where no sin existed, God gives work to Adam and Eve. He gives responsibility to them and restrictions to them in a perfect world. It's interesting because that will also be true in the new heaven and the new earth. You and I were actually created to be contributors, to be productive, to put our hand to something and see it flourish. What happens in the fall in the Garden of Eden when sin enters the equation is that work works against us now. But we were actually created to be contributors in the world. Now, the story goes on, on into Exodus chapter 16, and seemingly out of the blue, when the children of Israel are delivered from Egypt by God's power, by his mighty hand, he begins to give them instructions for how they're to live as his people. And in Exodus 16, seemingly out of the blue, this command shows up again to observe 
a Sabbath day, a day when you stop working. In fact, the passage in Deuteronomy reads this way, Deuteronomy 5, verses 12 through 14. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. I remember when this dawned on Kitri and I for the very first time, at least to me it seemed like the very first time, we were traveling, doing ministry, working seven days a week, moving from one location to the next, running with a group of interns during a season. And I was reading through the scriptures, and I got to the Ten Commandments, and it sort of struck me um, as odd that I believed all the commandments were important. How many of you believe it's important not to murder people? No, raise your hand high. You should be proud of that. It's like, it's important not to murder people. It's important not to steal. It's important not to commit adultery. It's important not to have idols. You know, that's true. Like, all the Ten Commandments were super important to me, except for this one. You know, it's one of the big ten. And we tend to think like, oh, yeah, you should definitely stop murdering people if you're doing it. Stop stealing. Stop worshiping idols. Stop, right? And yet when it comes to this one, we sort of just move on past it. And so we thought to ourselves, we got a lot of work to do. But according to Deuteronomy, the reason he told Israel to stop is all the way connected back to Genesis and a reminder to them that they were joining God in what he was doing, but they couldn't actually even deliver themselves, that God was the one who was at work. And they were called to stop one day. So, so we're like, well, let's try it. Let's see what happens. And so we started a habit, a pattern of observing a Sabbath once a week. We set some metrics, like if we miss it three weeks in a row, something's off in our lives. Um, my son would tell you, my son's married, um, had our first grandbaby, living down in Homer. Uh, he would tell you to this day that the Sabbath day in our family was his favorite day of the week. Like our phones were turned off. We weren't trying to solve all the world's problems. We just stopped and rested. And what happened as we introduced this idea to a whole generation of young people that were traveling with us is they loved it. And in fact, it actually became more important than the rest of the command. Like we were living for the Sabbath day. But the command actually has two parts to it. Six days, get your butt to work. Like six days, get your work done. Put your hand to it. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, that it's actually designed to have a rhythm or a relationship between work and rest, work and rest, work and rest, and yet we became so fixated on the rest that there was a tendency to become lazy. Which brings me to Slugfest 2020. I don't know if any of you remember what happened in 2020. For most of us, it's a repressed memory at this point. 2020, a global pandemic hit the world. And if you were to look at unemployment rates, unemployment rates went from 2019 around 3.6% unemployment, which by the way, if you look around the rest of the world, not too bad, but 3.6 unemployment to somewhere in the middle of 2020, 14.8% unemployment. Now, as shocking as this may sound, by the end of 2020, it had gone back down to 3.8% and stayed around there moving forward. But somewhere in the middle of 2020, all of this conversation began to happen about 
why are people so lazy? The word used in the scriptures is um, the word sluggard, which is an interesting term. How many of you would love to own a pet slug? Okay, Chloe wants one. Um, uh, like, like, they're just so gross, so nasty. You have to keep the salt away from them. I mean, all of that. They're, they're like a snail without a shale. They're just terrible. Um, and, but, but the reality is, that I, I was like, well, maybe, kind of like sloth, you know, because when you call someone slothful or you call them a sloth, you're referencing an animal. Anybody ever met a sloth? Not like a person. <laughs> Don't nudge your spouse. Like the real, the, I've seen, I've gotten to hold a sloth several times um, in the jungles of Peru. They're not quick. Like, it's like they were born with rigor mortis and it's getting worse over time. Like you pick one up and they're like, eh. Whatever position they're in, when you pick them up, they stay in. And about a year, they'll wrap their arm around you or something, right? Like, they're just so slow. And so we begin to refer to people as sloths because of the animal. But it's opposite with the slug. In fact, the word slug or sluggard comes from the 15th century. And it was actually a term applied to people who were obese, slow, and lazy. And then we named the bug that. Like, it started with people, and we're like, man, look at that thing. That's like you. <laughs> so slow and lethargic. Ugh. And I don't know if you know this, but it, it at least seems like. I'm a Gen Xer. Any other Gen Xers in the room? Best generation ever. We're like, we learned the moonwalk. We had parachute pants. We used cassette tapes and boom boxes. I'm just saying, okay, whatever. You don't have to agree. Uh, but, but I do distinctly remember the generation before us um, very clearly communicating we were the laziest generation ever born. Which I don't know, we're doing some pretty great stuff now. Um, but, but their definition of lazy was compared to how they did work. Each generation tends to do this. And somewhere in the middle of the pandemic, we were like, I don't know what's wrong with people. They're all lazy now. They want to work from home. That's lazy. But, but when it comes to jobs... Or work, did you know that you have more than one job? You have a job that is your employment, but you also have jobs that are equally important, like parenting. We'll get into all of it. During the pandemic time, I, because I'm a pastor, I can't, apparently can't post everything that I think is funny on social media. So I have folders full of memes that none of you ever get to see, but I just like scroll through occasionally. But one of my favorites during that time was um, all the marriage tips that were coming up. This was marriage tip um, 103. If a man says he will fix something, he will. You don't have to remind him every six months. Amen. How many of you right now are like, ow, yeah, that's, yeah. My wife really got a kick out of that one. Um, uh, another one was, was this one. Don't be angry at lazy people. They didn't do anything. <laughs> Some of them. I just can't show you the others because they're political. Uh, but, uh, but this one isn't necessarily true. In fact, laziness can be really dangerous. 
I was uh, doing a little bit of research. I was looking at um, the number of house fire deaths or home fire deaths every year. It's over 3,000 a year um, uh, as a result of home fires. And three in five of those had no working smoke detectors in the house. A quarter of those had smoke detectors, but the batteries were either dead or unhooked. And somebody had been saying, did you check the batteries in the smoke detector? We have these smoke detectors that were made by the devil. They like beep at you, but it's always in the middle of the night, right? The kids are in bed, the dogs are down for the night, everyone's tucked in, dreaming of sugar plums, and it's like, and then you gotta wander through the whole house because it's like an omnidirectional sound. Like, where is it? And you have to wait three minutes in between. <laughs> okay, you go downstairs, I'll be upstairs. Like, because you just wanna make it stop. But making it stop is where it really gets terrible. My wife and I routinely have this debate. She's like, no, you change it. No, 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 you change it. Because when you change the battery, depending on the design of the smoke detector, it automatically cycles through its entire thing, carbon monoxide, fire, tornado, nuclear attack. Like, and now all the kids are awake and the dogs are barking and it's just like, that's why I don't change my batteries. I know I could do it in the middle of the day, but it never beeps to remind me then. But the reality is, and this is what Proverbs 18 verse 9 says in relationship to laziness, a lazy person is as bad as someone who destroys things. The idea, don't blame lazy people, they didn't do anything, but their lack of doing something may actually be extremely dangerous for others. This is true in numerous areas of life, and it matters how we define laziness. I wanna give you a definition for laziness, and this is it. Laziness is rooted, or at its core, in selfishness. I actually don't want to because I don't want to. I'm not going to. It's the act of being a consumer while being unwilling to be a contributor. We could close right there. It's the act of being a consumer while unwilling to be a contributor. That's laziness. And to understand laziness from a biblical perspective, you actually need to understand it from an agrarian culture, a culture of planting and harvesting, because much of the context for the conversation around the sluggard or the slothful or the lazy and the diligent actually has much to do with an agrarian culture, where your responsibility is to plant and to harvest or remove something from the field to the table, which as Alaskans, I think we often have a better understanding of than many. I'd shown some pictures here not too long ago of some dead animals, which apparently is anathema online. Um, uh, I, was, I was clearly informed that I should never, ever, 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 ever show pictures of dead animals on a Sunday again. I almost brought some today. I almost just brought some dead animals and drug them up here, but like, I'm like, 
Clearly, they've been watching online because there's a dead animal in our foyer, so I don't know what to tell you. But, but the reality is we understand that our food comes from somewhere, and sometimes we get to participate in the whole process of bringing it from the field to the table. Now, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 is a passage of Scripture that I often heard referenced growing up as a kid. Uh, maybe I routinely use it as a parent. Now, tell me if you've ever heard this passage, 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10. Even while we were with you, we gave you this command. Those unwilling to work will not get to eat. Anybody grow up hearing that? Yep, no, you, until your chores are done, there ain't no food for you. As the good book says, those who don't work, don't eat, right? But it's written into a society where you are a contributor in the process of bringing, and when you didn't contribute, you shouldn't get to consume what was for others. He goes on, yet we hear that some of you are living idle lives, refusing to work and meddling in other people's business, or watching soap operas where they meddle in other people's business. Like you, are, you and I were created to be contributors, or we will become meddlers in other people's business where we don't belong. We'll become armchair quarterbacks in everyone else's life, but you were actually created to put your hands to work so that you could contribute, not just criticize in society. In fact, there's a rather obscure command in the book of Leviticus. It's just sort of out of the blue in the book of Leviticus, it appears, and it actually has to do with cultivating, harvesting in the fields. Here's what it says. When you harvest the crops of your land, you know, the ones that you tilled the field for, and not with a John Deere, like with oxen, and a plow, and the hard work of the sweat of your own brow, when you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your field, and do not pick up what the harvesters dropped. I know it belongs to you. I know it's yours. I know you're the one who worked for it, but leave it. Leave it for the poor and the foreigners living among you. I am the Lord, your God. It's interesting because it isn't a free handout, but it is generous. Somebody will have to come along and they will actually have to do the work of harvesting it, of preparing it, of cooking it. They'll have to do the work on their own, but your job is the one who planted it and the one who nurtured it and cultivated it and is now harvesting it is to leave some of it for others. In fact, in the book of Ruth, this is exactly what's happening when Ruth comes on the scene. She has left her homeland. She is going to a new place. And here's what it says. Now, there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. One day, Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who is kind enough to let me do it. Naomi replied, all right, my daughter, go ahead. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. It's exactly what's happening. It's a command given to the people of Israel. I know you did all the work and it all belongs to you, but don't take it all for yourself. Leave some for others. 
In fact, in Ephesians, Paul is writing to the church in a place called Ephesus, and apparently in the church in Ephesus, this is gonna come as a total shock to you, but there are thieves there. How many of you know stealing is bad? How many thieves do we have? No, I'm just kidding, don't raise your hand. No, go ahead, no, okay. Um, uh, if you're a thief, quit stealing. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> if you're a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good, hard work, and then give generously to others in need. What does it look like in the context of your sphere of work or income or employment to leave the corners of the field? To put your hands to work so that you could be generous to those who are in need, maybe like you once were. Proverbs 21, 25. Despite their desires, the lazy will come to ruin. You know why? For their hands refuse to work. Some people are always greedy for more, but the godly love to give. The sacrifice of an evil person is detestable, especially when it's offered with wrong motives. Generosity from the heart is actually one of the reasons we're called to be productive. We're called to go to work. It's true that it is selfish to consume without contributing but it's also selfish to consume everything you contribute. I would say it like this, consuming everything you worked for is also selfish from God's perspective. I made it, I bought it, I planted it, I harvested it. But one of the purposes of work is generosity. So why does all of this matter to God. I don't know if you remember the film Snow White and the Seven Little People. <laughs> Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. And in the middle of the show, she is now, um, um, she's conscripted to work for the Seven Dwarves, cleaning their house, taking care of their things, cooking their food while they go off to work each day. And so in order to console herself, sort of like Mary Poppins teaches, you know, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down, she sings this song, whistle while you work. It, anyway, say like my mouth is dry. Otherwise, I'd nail it. I know I would. Uh, uh, whistle while you work. And it's sort of her effort to make light of the work that she's doing so that she has a good attitude about it. And I would just say this. Why we work actually matters. The reason that we work matters to God. And probably one of the most extreme examples in the scriptures is the example of the relationship between a master and a bondservant. Depending on what translation you're reading these passages in, it may say slave in your translation or bondservant or servant. I just want to take a look at a passage, and I'm going to give you a little bit of explanation here. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Bondservants, or doulos, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service or only while they're watching, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. 
There's lots of debate in the translation process over what word to use here. And I would just tell you, um, maybe you've had these conversations before where people tell you that the scriptures promote the idea of slavery in a Western context, but they actually don't. In fact, this particular word, here's what you need to know about doulos in the New Testament, is that this word um, would in, entitle someone to actually certain privileges and rights. In fact, um, um, it, was a, it was limited to a particular period of time. Um, typically, that was seven years, and at the end of that time, it led to freedom. If you were in Caesar's household and you were a bond servant or a doulos, in Caesar's household, it was 14 years. Maybe you were brought in um, uh, beyond your own control or you voluntarily sold yourself into this position to pay off debts that you had. But when those debts were paid off, you either received the funds to pay them yourself or they were paid off on your behalf. It was economically driven in their day, not racially driven in their day. And it had protections in the Roman legal system and in the Hebrew legal system. So I just want to be clear, this is sort of a sidebar apologetic, but we're actually talking about something maybe very different than you hear when you read a passage like this. So he says, when you serve, I want you to serve in a way that isn't just to please people, but I want you to serve in a way that is actually to please God in this extreme circumstance. And he goes on to say this, knowing that whatever good anyone does this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. That whatever your role is, when it comes to employment or work or servitude, whatever your role is, fundamentally, both the master and the servant are called to work for the same reasons, for the good of others and to the glory of God. It's the epitome of whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, do it to the glory of God. Why we work matters to God. Which brings me to my second Snow White reference. Hi-ho, hi-ho. How many of you think the rest of that line goes like this? Hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to work we go. Yeah, you're wrong. I'm about to ruin your childhood. Because I too, until yesterday, thought that's how it went. In fact, I sent out an email this week that said, hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to work we go. And then I was thinking yesterday, what does the phrase hi-ho even mean? It's actually, it first shows up in 1502, the phrase does. And it's a way of saying, oh, so done, so bored. It's a way of saying, I'm finished. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm bored with this. It's an expression that was used much today in the way like, all right, I can't wait for Friday. And when you watch the, I know you're already, you're in your mind, you're like, no, no, I know you're wrong. No, there's two versions of that film. I know there's two versions of it. In fact, Pete and I were debating this last night via text. There's a raging debate online. I can just tell you, you can go and find the original lyrics and then you can go watch it. And it is, hi-ho, hi-ho, it's home from work we go. I know, 
<laughs> I love this. What? I can't be true. It is true. In fact, they don't start singing it until the whistle blows at work and they leave the mine and head home. And the truth is, if you watch the whole scene, they have no idea why they're working in the mine. <laughs> like they're, they're chiseling out already cut gems. And they're like dinging them with stuff. Like, I don't like the sound of that one. And then throwing them off a cliff. Like they're clearly not receiving the proceeds. They're just like showing up to work every single day and they just can't wait until work is over. And hi-ho, hi-ho, it's home from work I go because all I want to do is leave work. Did you know that wherever you're employed, whatever work that you put your hand to, there is other work to be done. Jesus, as best we can tell, grew up as a carpenter. He was the son of a carpenter. He doesn't begin his earthly ministry. He's going to be productive and a contributor long before he hits 32. Like, he doesn't begin his earthly ministry until relatively late in life. He was doing something prior to that. And yet in John chapter 4, Jesus and his disciples come to a Samaritan community, and the disciples are famished. They're hungry, they want some food, but they do not want to go into a Samaritan town because there's a big rift between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Samaritans are half-breeds in their minds, and they don't want to be around those people. No self-respecting Jew would go into a Samaritan community and let alone buy food from a Samaritan who had made it with their own unclean hands. But Jesus instructs his disciples to go into town and get some food. And so they do. They head into town. They spend some of their hard-earned money to get some food, and then they come back. While they're away, Jesus has had a conversation uh, with a woman known as the woman at the well. And Jesus is like all kinds of fired up after this conversation. And when the disciples return, they're like, we got some food. Here's your Chick-fil-A. Jesus is like, I don't want no Chick-fil-A. It wasn't Chick-fil-A. I'm just kidding about that part. Some of you are like, really? I knew it was a Christian company, but I didn't know if it was like all the way. Anyways. We got some food for you. And Jesus says, oh, I'm, in, I'm not hungry. And, and then he goes on to say this. Gen, then Jesus explained, verse 34, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. Jesus says, listen, I got food to eat that you probably can't even understand right now. I'm just not hungry right now because here's my actual job. My job, what produces nourishment for me, is to actually do the work of God. Have you ever paused to ask this question? What is the work of God in the place that I work? Because it's possible that you and I could be working really hard, really diligent at our nine-to-five job and lazy in the real work. We were called to do. In fact, Jesus is going to elaborate on this with his disciples who will soon have to figure out what they're going to be doing for a living after Jesus is gone. He goes on to say this, you know the saying, four months between planting and harvest. In Alaska, it's one month between planting and harvest, and then the whole season's over. But, but for them, four months between the planting and harvest. But I say, wake up, look around. The fields are already ripe for the harvest. The harvesters, oh, they're paid a good wage. And the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike. 
I remember the first time it dawned on me that at my job, at my employment, there was other work to be done. I was working construction for a, a union company in Oklahoma, Williams Construction, and I was working as a cub carpenter on these commercial sites, building up forms for pouring concrete and that kind of stuff. And I was young, and all the guys I was working with, like... <laughs> They had to have been like in the Hells Angels or a biker gang or something. Like they were just some of the most crass, uh, way worse than the commercial fishermen I worked around. Like I go into work every day and sort of like just try and make it through. And, and one day the Lord challenged me. He just said, um, hey, Jonathan, what do you think about um, telling them about me? <laughs> I don't know if you've met them, Lord, but it is abundantly clear they want to know nothing about you other than how to use your name in various ways in all kinds of sentences. Like, I don't want to know anything about you. And then the Lord just said to me, well, would you be willing just to knock on the door, to ask some simple questions, to see if maybe they'd be interested in having spiritual conversation? Fine. I'll figure out some way to ask an innocuous question so that they don't know. Uh, and so I did. And what I discovered in a relatively short period of time, and this is no exaggeration, nine times out of ten, those men jumped into spiritual conversation with me. And what I discovered is that I had employment, but I also had work to do. That the harvest was exactly as Jesus describes it. That I was called to work in the fields. He actually goes on to say this. You know the saying, one plants and another harvest, and it's true. I sent you to harvest where you did not plant. Others had already done the work, and now you will get to gather the harvest. That you have a part to play in the work that Jesus was doing in the world, that the prophets were doing in the world, that Adam and Eve were doing in the world, that the disciples were doing in the world, the apostles were doing in the world, that everyone who is a follower of Jesus, that you actually are called to be diligent. Where is your work ethic in the work you were actually called to do? How would we measure it? Here's my observation. Not everything we do for work always seems good to us, but almost anywhere we work has good that can be done in it. As a soldier, 1918, right about the time my dad was in the army. Just kidding, that's not true. That was terrible. Sorry, Dad. Happy Veterans Day. 1918, Private Martin Treptow. In fact, Ronald Reagan made this quote famous all over again. Somebody needed to run a message over to another battalion in the middle of heavy machine gun fire, and this young man said he'd do it, and so he grabbed the message that needed to be carried over, and he took off. He was in France at the time, and as he got close to the other side, he came under heavy machine gun fire and was killed. When they recovered his body, they pulled a journal out of his chest pocket, and in the journal, under the heading, The Pledge, he had written these words. America must win this war. Therefore, I will work. I will save. I will sacrifice. I will endure. I will fight cheerfully and do my utmost as if the issue of the whole struggle depended 
upon me. That's what diligence looks like. That's what service looks like. That's what I've witnessed in friends of mine who have said yes to military service over and over again. It's something that carries on into the rest of their lives, but it's also what service in the kingdom of God looks like. That I would approach the relationships around me, I would engage with the people around me as though the whole struggle rested on my shoulders. I would work like all of it's my problem and I'm gonna pray like all of it's God's problem. But at the end of the day, he has invited me into a labor that goes far beyond my employment, my tasks, my responsibilities. He's invited me to harvest in the fields wherever I find myself in the world. I'm gonna invite you to stand. When I saw this quote, I was reminded of Proverbs 24. Proverbs 24, 24 verses 10 through 12 say this, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? Jesus, what we desire is that our eyes would be opened that we would recognize that we have a responsibility to be providers, to be contributors, to actually be contributors in places that we never get paid, but ultimately to join you in the harvest of souls for your kingdom. You've already done the work, Jesus. You've already been raised up on the cross. You're already drawing all people to yourself. You're inviting us to step into a field that has been plowed, a field that has been sown in, a field that has been watered, and you've invited us to join you in the harvest. Would you raise up a generation of diligent workers? Would you show us the places where we're prone to laziness? And would you call us to constructive contributions? Would you teach us to be generous with our time, with our resources, with the ways that we serve? And Jesus, we just say thank you for modeling all of it for us. In your name, amen. These next two Sundays for us as a church, every year we come around to this season. It's right before Thanksgiving. We call them Generosity Sundays because every year we try and fill up our benevolence fund It's that fund that we use to meet needs right here in our own community. Every year we distribute more than $20,000 to pay electric bills, to get heat turned back on, to get a car repaired. We have a whole team who takes each of those requests that come in and sort of vets them, looks over them, and then tries to provide not just financial help, but also point people in a direction that they can get the other help that they need too. So the next two Sundays, I would encourage you, be praying about the ways that you could leave the corners of the field for others who will be in need. 
Also, we want you to know that those funds are available. If you meet people in need, they can fill out that application. We'll get back to them, but we delight in being able to be generous as a church. And over the next two weeks, we're gonna invite you to participate in that as well. Our prayer ministry teams are available here on both sides. If you need prayer today, they would be honored to join with you in prayer. Church on the Rock, we love you. Tonight is Ascent class, right, Pete? Ascent class number two. If you missed number one, you can go back and watch it. Tonight, class number two is happening right here in this room. Grace and peace to you, church. You are dismissed. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play. Thank you.